Welcome to The Antique Show. We talk antiques, collectibles and art and all the news and events from Australia and around the globe. Here's your host, Jason Harris. Oh, thank you, voiceover guy. And we are back. The Antique Show for 2020, our first episode. This is episode nine in total, but our first episode for 2020. My name is Jason Harris, and I welcome you to The Antique Show. Uh, before we get on to what we have on for the day, the man behind the glass, Mark, sporting a brand new haircut there as well, Mark. It's short on the sides, long on the top, and some a few blonde streaks. Amazing. You're looking ever, ever wonderful as you do. And of course, our voiceover guy, he has the voice of angels. Although I've never heard an angel speak, I can only picture it'll be like that. Now, we've been on a break, a hiatus, a gap, a holiday since late last year, a little bit of overseas travel. And of course, that has stopped. We did have some travel for this year and we've had to cancel like many many others uh, in Australia and across the world we've had to cancel all that travel so a little bit more time on my hands now before we get into the main show let's talk about the elephant in the room of course the COVID virus absolutely devastating to so many South Australians Australians and people across the world my heart goes out to you for those who have been affected or personally affected or know someone that's been affected by this whether you're unwell, you've lost your job, you've lost someone as a result of that. Um, yeah, my heart does go out to you. Just in our own little sphere of the world, had to close Scammels last week, which is a really sad time. We've been open for 18 years. It's not closed forever. They're just under government directive, and I've had to stand down 21 of my staff, which is just a horrible thing to do. But that's the reality of where we're at. So what are we doing today? We're going to talk about antiques. We're going to try and bring a little bit of light into the darkness that we have at the moment. Talk about some fun stuff, some antiques. We're going to talk about collectibles. In this week's episode, we're going to talk about flambe. What is flambe? So just a little bit of an update on what flambe is. We're going to talk more about barsoni. If you don't know what barsoni is, uh, have a look at uh, around some of the shops, if you're allowed to get out, uh, the antique shops or Google online Barsony lamps, they are absolutely beautiful. And we're also going to talk about weird things people collect. This week's episode, cereal boxes of all things. Who would have thought? People collecting cereal boxes. All right, let's get into the show with the first session. We're going to talk about the news. Okay, heading the news out. Now, despite the constant coronavirus threat, collectors bid enthusiastically at Lesky's Auctions Melbourne sale of toys, trains and models on March 22nd. The feature piece was a Yonzawa 58 Atom Jet Racer tin friction space toy, circa 1958, 69 centimetres in length, and it was believed to be one of the largest tin friction toy cars ever created by the Japanese toy industry. And that sold for $5,500 for a tin toy. Quite an amazing price, really. And moving over to some art. Davidson's auction sale of Australian international art last Sunday two weeks ago had a combined low estimate of 444000 for the 472 lots. The sale proved to be quite successful with an 80% clearance rate and a total hammer price of $450,000. It was quite interesting because the in the week before the sale, Principal David 
or Robert Davidson, had informed prospective buyers that the auction house would absorb the online bidding fee of 5% charged by online auction platform Invaluable. Now, that's quite an interesting move because that eats straight into if you charge, let's say, 20% buyer's premium and you're giving away 5% back or waiving the 5%, you're essentially giving away 25% of your gross, which is quite an unprecedented move. And it may have eliminated major barriers to online buyers. Now to international news, we talk about Baroque, and we don't mean something that's dropped on the floor, but a 17th century Baroque ivory plaque depicting Pieter, attended by angels and putty, sold for 280,000 euro. Now this is despite it being listed by a Genoa auction house, Wayans, on March the 3rd for just 600 to 800 euros. And just goes to show the power of the auctions and the market even during this time, and you think this is the 23rd of March, that a piece like this, as rare as it is by Johann Christoph Storer, could be sold for €280,000. Now, we're going to talk about gaming boards. Now, this came out of a valuation day in Tunbridge Wells that led to a consignment of a 16th century Augsburg Rosewood and Bone gaming board. It was given an estimate of 10,000 to £20,000 and offered for a sale at Catherine Sutton on February 26. It finally sold for £30,000 to an overseas buyer. And the vendor recounts that they found it on a scrap heap in London's East End in 1970 and they had little idea of its date or its rarity. Okay, into posters. Now, we've covered posters so many times before on the Antique Show and it goes without saying they are probably one of the highest priced and most coveted collectibles out there. And this is no different. A rare 1933 Universal Studio horror film, The Invisible Man poster, which measured 68 by just over one metre. It was a one-sheet stone litho. And they had it guided around about $125,000. This is Heritage Auctions. You haven't even been on to Heritage before. Go on to it now. I think it's something like... Uh, HA1 or HA.com. Have a look at uh, Heritage Auctions. So, this single sheet stone litho poster sold for 152,000 US dollars. Now, it's quite a rare offering. And the auction house said this is only one of a very small handful of style B posters that are known to exist. And into other posters, the Who. Who doesn't know the who? Well, certainly if you are younger than 35 or 40 years old, you probably don't remember the who, but those who are as my vintage or even older again, you'll know the who. Anyway, there was a a poster that advertised an early gig at the short-lived Blue Moon Club. Now, it had an estimate of 200 to 400 pounds. It measured between 72 and 95 Centimeters. It came up at a sale in Corsham near Bath on the 12th of March and it sold for £11,500. How exciting is that? Now, there are a few pieces that make or have made a greater physical or financial statement than the Persian bird. It was a monumental or is a monumental stoneware vase that stood 63 centimetres high. And this is made by State Murray Potts. Now, the multiple bidders bid this piece up from the opening price of £1,500 and it eventually sold at Woolley and Wallace's for £28,000. Now, how's this for a very unusual story in the final uh, the final story in the news today? A hawk bell. Now, I've never come across a hawk bell before. I'm going to look it up. 
A hawkbill was inscribed by HRH Prince Julep Singh of Mulgrave Castle was hammered down for £5,500. Now, the bell came along with a £2 reward offer to the finder of the bird who would return it alive to the country house near Whitby, where the prince lived from 1858 to 1862. Now, originally had a price of 80 to £120, and the bidding opened to a very large and in, not large, a loud and enthusiastic Indian bidder. The bell eventually sold to a uh, someone in Netherlands for five thousand five hundred pounds. And look up what a hawk bell is. Anyway, that's it for the news. I invite you to visit Learn Antiques, where you can read, watch, learn, and grow. www.learnantiques.com.au. There's articles, news, video, and podcasts, and it's all for free at Learn Antiques. www.learnantiques.com.au. Discover to find unexpectedly. Now, this is one of my favourite parts of the show where we get to dive deep into something that's collectible out there with Discover. Now, for those who don't know or collect Barsoni lamps, think of the simple, beautiful black painted lady lamps, usually with brightly, almost garishly painted highlights and striped shades. Well, these are Barsoni lamps. Now, George Barsney was born on the 15th of November 1917 in Hungary. He was a talented sculptor, and even at the age of 21, he produced his first major sculpture, which is the 2.2-metre bronze statue of St Francis of Assisi. Now, Barsney came to Sydney as a refugee in 1949, and shortly after met his wife, Jean Bird, an immigrant from England. They moved into a home in Bankstown in 1955 and they opened up a small workshop that eventually became Varsini Ceramics. The company operated during 1950 to 1970, had a factory on Guernsey Street in Guildford, West Sydney. Most of the Varsini Ceramic products were decorative items such as figurines, lamp bases, candlesticks, figure vases, wall hangings and bookends. They also produced items under the brand Venice and Silver Cloud, but these are rarely seen in the market. The most popular of the Barsney's ranges are its porcelain lamps, often referred to as Barsney lamps. Makes sense, doesn't it? What separates these from other lamps are their highly decorative bases. Barsney lamps are distinctive because of their black colour scheme and distinct base, carefully crafted figurines in graceful poses. Some Barsney lamps have hidden light bulbs, while other pieces don't even have any, despite being called lamps. Despite not being a functional source of illumination, Barsley lamps are beautiful enough to be displayed as works of art. Now, the Barsley ladies are known for their soft round edges, rounded breasts, unlike similar figures that have more pointed breasts and bright red lips. The black figures are contrasted by splashes of colour on their clothing accessories. Now, while some might find a few of the Barsley lamps politically suspect, many pieces are notably elegant for the feminine poses added to their aesthetics. Each piece was hand-painted, making each piece unique and most desirable for collectors. Some had accents attached to them. For example, the Barsney's ballerina lamps have pearl drop earrings. Now, the shades themselves were quite amazing. These are all handmade by Jean Barsney. Now, there are very few of these actually still survive, original ones anyway, still survive. 
Now, for those who want to sort of work through how the product range was modelled and, and numbered, the genuine Barsney pieces have labels that used to contain a model or a mould number and a letter to indicate the type of item. So H stands for head, L for lamp, V all means vase lamp, FL is figural lamp and so on. There are also pieces that have titles following them and a type and model or mould number such as Beauty of the Beach, which is FL19, and Sitting Black Lady, FL39. Now, another thing that one might notice regarding labels is some of the pieces have a sticker that say Made in England, despite actually being made as an Australian product. Now, that could have been because of the export. Barsing lamps once sold for around about $15 in the 1980s, and around about 2007, 2008, they were peaking around about $300. Now, we've sold them uh, on our online sales for anywhere between $300 and $800, depending on the model. Now, collectors are advised to take extra care in purchasing the lamps that are often passed off as Barsoni, Barsoni and these are Barsoni's style. Now, they're reasonably crude imitations, and once you get to know them, you can pick them up quite easily, even from a photograph. Just be aware there is Barsoni's style out there. There's very little information out about Barsony and the company, other than we know there's been a huge resurgence in the interest in Barsony lamps. We're not 100% certain why, other than with the resurgence of the mid-century and popular culture, that we feel that the Barsony lamps fit in there beautifully. And I think most mid-century collectors would have at least one in their collection. But whatever the reason... Barsney lamps are quite unique decorative pieces and they've captivated a generation and may continue to do so for some years. Barsney. Ready, go! Weird stuff we collect. Okay, this is the bizarre, the interesting and the very, very odd. I'm always amazed about what people actually collect. I mean, I've, I've got friends who collect some reasonably sensible stuff, toys and jewellery and watches and pens and all that type of stuff. Then there's the fringe dwellers of the collectors. Now, they are their own subset, and I mean that politely. They, they are still an amazing group of people, but they have some very odd tastes, and, and whether they're inspired by generations past, by their childhood, I really don't know until we delve deeper into this but they collect some pretty weird stuff. And we've seen over the last few episodes where we dug a little bit deeper into weird stuff people collect. And we've come across, you know, serial premiums and toenail clippings, then, you know, actors and actresses' hair of all sorts of things. People collecting salt and pepper shakers, cat figures and, and all sorts of stuff. Anyway, this week we're going to talk about serial boxes. And it actually comes from a reasonably serious, not serial, but reasonably serious background. Now, it took a young doctor from Battle Creek in Michigan named John Harvey Kellogg, now you know where this is going to go, to make cereal fully mainstream. His lighter, crispier cornflakes, that was the original one produced, was created to feed sanitarium patients. Now, practically an overnight success. And by the early 1900s, there were dozens of cereal companies that popped up in Battle Creek. Going back before... Kellogg produced cornflakes. The first cold breakfast cereal was invented in 1860, quite a long time ago, called Granula. Now, it was never quite captured the hearts of the American consumers due to lack of convenience. You literally had to soak the nuggets 
overnight in milk before they can be consumed without chipping a tooth. And it probably wasn't that tasty either. Apparently, granula was made from graham flour and water. I couldn't think of anything more tasteless than that. Now, it wasn't until after World War II that the cereal companies began targeting kids. And in 1948, Post introduced, the, and a Post is a cereal production company or a food company, introduced its first sugar-coated cereal called Sugar Crisps, along with an animated TV commercial, and its competitors quickly followed suit. And in 1951, Kellogg's unveiled its feline mascot, Tony the Tiger, who convinced kids all over the nation how great it was that the company's frosted flakes should be consumed every morning for breakfast. So keep with us here. We're going. Let's introduce Dwayne Dimmick of the US. Dwayne Dimmick has over 10,000 boxes in his collection. And the most prized of his specimens is an original Kellogg's cornflake box from 1906. Can you imagine something lasting 114 years made of cardboard? with what I can only assume to be some spot colour or some pretty basic graphics on it. This has survived from 1906. And it only survived, and this is the interesting part, it only survived for the decades is because it was used as padding for the back of a picture frame. Now, we know we also recently paid $450 for a box of cereal. That's nothing in comparison to an unopened package of Post 10. So again, Post is a, a cereal company. Those little packs of 10, I remember these taking these away camping with us. A pack of 10 mini cereals, an unopened box or set of these sold for $2,550 on eBay. Now, that, that was dating back in 1961. That's when they were made, not when it was sold, obviously, because eBay didn't exist back then. And just a few weeks ago, a box of Quaker crisps of the similar era, 1961, sold for $2,100. So next time you're fossicking through your grandmother's cupboards or your mum's cupboards, the backs there, the deep, dark corners, have a look at some of the old cereal boxes. I'd like to take this story a little bit further than just cereal boxes, and that is packaging in general. And it wasn't that long ago, I think about three or four weeks ago, we sold a large group of vintage packaging, 1960s, 1950s, 1940s, and, and the likes. Some mostly Australian brands as well, sold for $2,800. So whilst you're fossicking around in your grandmother's cupboards in the deep, dark corners, of course, ask for permission first. That's always rude. Look out for packaging, not just the cereal boxes, but packaging, vintage packaging of all sorts. These are the things that can easily be thrown away, but are really worth some great money to collectors. Cereal boxes on weird stuff we collect. Prepare yourself. Okay, let's go. All right, let's do a little bit of a deep dive into some auction prices from around the world and locally. We start off with lot number 1135, a men's Oyster Tudor Submariner Rolex. And it, there's one of the top names of watchmakers in the world, been around for year, oh, centuries now. It was a stainless steel one, an automatic. Lovely watch. It needed some work, but good original one, sold for $6,100. Now, Royal Winton, for those who remember the chintz pattern, that's the all-over pattern. And I remember the days, 1990s, 1990, between 1990 and 1995, where all-over pattern absolutely boomed. And I'm talking about selling a small teapot for around $600 back then. 
And I was only earning $300 a week. So it was two weeks worth of my wage for a teapot. So last week, lot number one, two, five, six, a hazel pattern. So that's the black uh, reserve or background with these delicate little flowers of pink and yellow and blues and, and purples. It was a teapot and a coffee can and a, um, yeah, a teapot, a coffee can and a teacup sold for $260. Now, quite unusual, the next one, lot number 1262 is a vase. It was a large figural Art Nouveau Royal Ducks vase. So Royal Ducks uh, maker in continental uh, Europe. 72 centimetres in height. But the odd thing about this, it was damaged. And a lot of these figures and vases do get damaged over time. They're extremely fragile. So it's a beautiful, tall green vase with uh, what looks like a branch and leaves wrapped around it and a figure of a, a lady on one side. And that sold for $400. Now, we've, we've covered this in the earlier news article. And this is about the H.G. Wells Fantastic Sensation Invisible Man movie. So this is the poster that was produced in 1933 by B, or it was a Style B, by Carolee Groves. Now, he made a lot of artwork for horror films, but I've got one of my guys, Toby, who's an expert in movie posters. I'm far from it. And it was a fabulous piece, sold for $152,000. Spot colour, lots of colour on this though, but spot colour. Quite an amazing piece. And it shows Gloria Stewart and Claude Rains, along with Henry Travers and Forrester Harvey. And it was a Universal Pictures show, but it's quite amazing. Uh, the movie itself I haven't actually seen, but written by H.G. Wells. And finally, we talk about The Hobbit. Now, this goes to show that even in poor condition, item can still get an amazing price. This was a 1937 first impression of J.R.R. Tolkien's The Hobbit. And it sold at a recent sale in Surrey. And it was missing so much. I mean, it was quite in defective condition. It was lacking its jacket. It didn't have the original publisher's binding. It was in a green cloth one. And it had a uh, sticker over the front of it called Book, or Boots Book Lovers Library. But despite all that, it sold for £2,200 in February of this year. So it just goes to show, even in poor condition, some items can be worth some money to the right collectors. What it's worth this week for the Antique Show. All right, closing comments. What to say? It's an interesting one. Normally I do a lot of reading, listen to a lot of podcasts, meditate, and I get some reflections, and during those reflections I learn and discover things. But this week's message is more from dealing with self-isolation. We were on holidays the week before last and driving through country New South Wales and Victoria and we got caught on the wrong side of the border on Sunday when our Premier Mr Marshall uh, closed the borders. So we had to go into self-isolation for 14 days and, and as I sit here in my studio it's now day 8 and I cope with it quite well. I, I quite like my own space and I, I love my house and I love my garden and my wife bless her heart, less so. She's a very social person, likes to be out and about and doing things. And, and it's interesting to see how different people work through uh, isolation. But what's been the major 
learning for me is keeping in social contact while you keep your social distance. And so we're using a piece of software called Zoom. Now I'm not um, sponsored by Zoom as I mentioned in the introduction. But we are, we use Zoom to have Zoom wines and, on, and that's when you just catch up for a glass of wine uh, virtually. Then on Saturday night we caught up and had a Zoom dinner party. So we each cooked our own food or a plate of cheese and biscuits and a glass of wine or beer or whatever it is that takes your fancy. And you dial in using your laptop or your iPad or even your phone and you can see each other. And we had a group of uh, we had seven people on there or seven couples. And we were talking with each other as if we're having dinner at each other's place. And what, what fascinated me is it took a lot less effort to connect and to, and to see these guys than it would be if I was to host a dinner party or have people around. And it's really gonna be the new way of doing things. I mean, I've caught up with friends that I either haven't seen for a while or I've seen them more over the last week and a half than I probably would have in a month. My guys from EO, the Entrepreneurs' Organisation, we caught up more times in the last week and a half than we probably do over the course of a month. So it's actually changed and this is the silver lining for me, it's actually changed the dynamics of social interactions for me. Yeah, there's no touch and feel and I get that type of thing and I'm not really a touch and feel type of person anyway. But to be able to see someone to have a talk, to really cost nothing other than the effort of hopping online. So for those who have never done it before, it is so simple to do. There's, and I'm only suggesting Zoom because it's quite an easy one to use. You can use Facebook uh, or Messenger, I think, as well. But Zoom allows you to connect multiple people together and all you need is a device that has a camera on it. So hop on Zoom. There's no need to be alone at this time of the year whilst we get through COVID. And I hope very shortly that we're at the end of it and we can open up very, very soon and resume our lives on whatever the new normal is. Anyway, that's it for The Antique Show. I've been Jason Harris and I welcome you to our next episode next week. Thank you. That was another episode of The Antique Show and was brought to you by Antique Education, Learn Antiques and Scammel Options. Recorded in the Antique Show studios in the Antique Education headquarters in Grange, South Australia. Copyright 2019.